0: I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2nd Peter chapter 3. 2nd Peter chapter 3. This, I believe, is the tenth and final sermon on this particular epistle. I believe there were 22 in 1st Peter and 10 now in 2nd Peter. And this will bring to a conclusion our study of Peter's epistles and my discourse this morning is entitled, The Character and Conduct of Christian Hope. We come to the final section of Peter's epistle here in verses 11 through 18. Remember that these were the final days of Peter's life, just prior to his martyrdom through crucifixion. And he has labored hard to remind his readers of many things. May I remind you of some of the essential truths He has reminded us of the essence, first of all, of the gospel of Jesus Christ versus the counterfeit gospel of false teachers. He's also reminded us of how to truly experience the assurance of our salvation, not wanting any of us to walk around through life kind of wondering if indeed the Savior has done what he has promised to do for all who place their faith in him. He has also reminded us of the importance of remaining steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he has gone into great detail, helping us to understand the ongoing threat of false teachers, how to identify them, the certain doom that will fall upon them, the types of things that drive them. And then he defended the coming day of judgment when Christ will return rebutting the prejudicial arguments of the mockers, the history revisionists that refuse to acknowledge what God has done in the past and therefore what he will do. Those who not only scoff at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also deny his lordship in their lives. And now he closes his epistle with a passionate theme that has been woven through the fabric of his first and second letter, namely the need for we as believers to live godly, holy lives in light of Christ's imminent return. Follow along as I read the text, Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The character and conduct of Christian hope. In light of what God has promised that will happen, how should we live? And I believe we can look at this text before us and discover five characteristics that should define our life as believers. Five essential marks that are readily apparent to those who know him best. Let me give them to you. First, we should be characterized by a confident anticipation of God's promises. Secondly, by a private pursuit of holiness, thirdly, by a zeal for evangelism, fourthly, by a vigilance for doctrinal precision, and fifthly, by a passion to know and glorify Christ. And I would challenge you this morning to measure your life against these standards that God has given us. And frankly, I would ask you to be brutally honest something that is not always easy for us to do. This is no time for rationalizations or for justifications, no time to inflate your own spirituality, but a time to honestly look at yourself and ask the question, do these marks of a believer really characterize who I am? Are these the characteristics that really become... The center of gravity around which my life orbits are these the themes that dominate my prayer life are these the priorities in my Bible study and in my reading do these concepts nourish my soul like nothing else am I so decisively committed to these marks that when they are replaced. My other priorities or when they're compromised, I find my conscience plaguing me with conviction. Am I so passionate about these crucial truths that I long to speak about them to those that I know and love? That's what we're looking for here. And I would especially challenge you men, you husbands and you, you fathers. Are these the types of things that characterize your life to a point where you could say to your wife and to your children and even to your grandchildren? Loved ones, I want you to follow my example. I want you to look at my life and I want you to see that the dominant theme, the passion of my life is to have a confident anticipation of God's promises. A private pursuit of holiness, a zeal for evangelism, a vigilance for doctrinal precision, and a passion to know and glorify Christ. Watch me. Listen to me. Let me teach you these things. That is my challenge to you this morning. Well, this was the passion of a dying apostle. A man whom God had transformed from an habitual sinner to a godly saint. A man whose heart was so consumed with these essential priorities of Christian living that he even reminded us of them in his first letter. You will recall in first Peter one beginning in verse 14, he said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The same theme is repeated in first Peter, two verses nine through twelve and chapter three, verses eight through twelve and chapter four, verses one and two. And now he repeats them again in verse eleven here in second Peter, chapter three. And he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, unlike the scoffers who reject. The promise judgment that will come the day of the Lord, as he talked about in verse 10, that time of great outpouring of divine wrath upon all who reject him in light of the day of reckoning that is to come. He's saying, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And as we look at the grammatical construction of the original language, we see this isn't just a question as if he's. Trying to ask some question. This is a rhetorical question that is stated in the form of an exclamation. It's like a shout of sheer excitement and obvious truth. What he's saying here is in light of the coming judgment when God will glorify himself by pouring out his wrath upon the wicked. In light of the reality that someday he is going to renovate the earth when he comes again the second time. Returning it to Edenic splendor. And establishing his throne in Jerusalem, when he will reign in absolute righteousness for a thousand years upon the earth, just as he promised. And we will reign with him when he will fulfill his unequivocal, unilateral and irrevocable covenants to Abraham and to David. At the end of which will be the great white throne judgment when he uncreates the earth and recreates a new heaven and a new earth, in light of all these eschatological truths that will most certainly come to pass, he's saying how magnificent should be your commitment to holy conduct and godliness. That's his point. Holy conduct and godliness. Now, these are attributes defining both the outer and the inner man. Holy conduct would be a reference to the fruit of godliness that all who know us should be able to readily see and enjoy. And godliness refers to that private, secret devotion to God that we should have that dominates our thoughts and motivates our will. And dear friends, these are the twin pillars, if you will, of character and conduct these things should have no rival in your life. There should absolutely be no greater priority in your life. Especially in light of such marvelous hope of what is going to come to pass. Oh, well, Child of God, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's the point. The Lord is coming again. He's coming again in power and in great glory. And sometimes we can lose sight of this glorious reality, getting caught up in all of the stuff of this world. Certainly, this was at the heart of the Apostle Paul's admonition in Colossians 3, verse 2. He said, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He goes on to say, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Beloved, let this sink in for a moment. Eternal blessing and reward await all who have sacrificially served the Lord and worshiped him in spirit and in truth. That's why the Apostle Paul said in second Corinthians five, beginning in verse nine, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So. So. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. My friends, my point with all of this is simply to say we need to all be very serious about our holy conduct and godliness. This needs to be the priority in our life. To make the mortification of indwelling sin a daily priority. To decisively commit ourselves to these five characteristics that we are about to understand. Let these characteristics define the character and the conduct of we as Christians in light of our hope. John tells us in 1 John 3 beginning in verse 1. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. In other words, he will conform us to his glorious image. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what purifies himself just as he is pure. So this is a purifying hope that we speak of today. Paul told Titus in Titus chapter two, beginning in verse 11, the same concept there. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Now, let's examine the five very specific and practical ways the Holy Spirit gives us through his inspired apostle in order to help us know precisely how to excel in holy conduct and godliness. First of all, we must have a confident anticipation of God's promises. Verse 12, he says, looking for. Let me pause there just for a moment. It's interesting In several other places in his epistles, he kept reminding us, like, for example, in chapter three, verse two, he said he was talking about, remember the words spoken beforehand. In other words, go back and remember the truth so that you can do something else. Look forward to what is coming. And that's what he's saying here, looking for in verse 12, the coming day of God. And even in verse 13, looking for the new heavens and new earth. So he says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. In other words, we need to be looking for. It means literally to look forward to something with an eager anticipation, not dreading it, certainly not being indifferent indifferent towards it, And not being ignorant of it, as many are. I remember someone said, well, no one can understand eschatology, the study of last things. Nobody can understand the prophetic scriptures. And therefore, I am a panmillennialist. Everything's going to pan out in the end anyway, so let's don't worry about it. Dear friends, that's the wrong attitude. That is certainly with the words of someone who is lazy, in fact, blissfully ignorant, bereft of spiritual discipline, discipline and power, and I might add, as shallow as water on a plate. That is an unbiblical concept. In fact, we're told in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. And at the end of Revelation chapter 22, verse, verses 18 through 19, there is a warning of judgment against those who would add or detract anything from the prophetic word. But we are to have a confident anticipation of God's promises, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. And of course, Peter has already delineated Numerous events that will transpire when the Lord brings to a conclusion the history that he set into motion when he created all things. And he says here that we should be looking for it and hastening the coming. Literally, you could interpret that longing for an acceleration of the presence, the parousia, the presence, the appearing of the glorious presence of God. We should be longing for it to hurry up and come. After having revealed to him the amazing chronology of future judgment and glorification, John tells us in Revelation 22, verse 20, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. That's the attitude we are to have. Whenever I think of this subject, I find my mind going back to a story I believe I've shared with you before. There is a place in Chicago where they care for retarded adults, a Christian facility run by Christians. And I discovered that the greatest problem they had in their cleaning of that facility was keeping the windows clean because the people that stay there, childlike adults, seem to always have their hands and their faces pressed against the glass looking for Jesus to come. That needs to be our attitude. I would ask you, are you looking for and hastening the coming day of God? Or is such a reality something that, frankly, is of little importance to you? Do you find yourself, if you're really honest, being much more concerned about your career and the stock market and your retirement account than the reality of Of the coming day of God. The coming day of God or the day of God, as we see it here, denotes the eternal state, the new heavens and earth. When man's day is over, when Satan's day is over and God's day has come, when the glories of the new creation will exist with no hint, no contamination of sin. Now, important distinction here. This is different Than the day of the Lord, very different than that day that refers to the cataclysmic judgments during the time of the tribulation and again at the end of the millennial kingdom. But this is the day of God. And Peter goes on to describe the events that will precede this inconceivably glorious day of God. In verse 12, he says, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Dear Christian, what? What language must I borrow to somehow express such an ineffable display of the glory of God? And to think that somehow, at the conclusion of the glorious millennial kingdom, we who have been serving and reigning with Him as God has promised, will, will behold this uncreation, on account of which, he says, the heavens will be destroyed by burning And the elements will melt with intense heat. Paul spoke of this glorious coming of the day of God in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. He said, it will be that time when all things are subjected to him. Then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Beloved, do you long for this day to come? When the majesty and the glory and the excellency of Christ will radiate throughout the universe. In verse 13, he goes on to say, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The term new in the original language is kinos, It's a word that means something that is new in quality, not something that is new in time. Now, Please understand when Christ comes again the second time, he renovates the earth, returns it back to Edenic splendor during the for the millennial reign. But at the end of that he uncreates and then recreates the earth and the heavens and that's the new heavens and the new earth. So you must understand when he does this, the eternal state will not be the same creation as we know it, just kind of remade. It will be totally different. It will be something that, frankly, we can't even fathom. We don't understand. It's something that we've never seen. It's something that we've never experienced. And yet, as I study Scripture, what is amazing to me is even though I have never experienced it, nor have you, When we are there, we will recognize immediately that we are finally home. There will be no time needed to adapt to some new environment. There there, there will not be any sense of being an alien in some strange place. But suddenly, friends, we're going to be home. There's no place like home, right? And we all know that feeling, especially when you've been away from home. And you come back to home. All of a sudden, there's just this feeling. I mean, every smell, everything you touch, everything you hear, there's a sense of this is where I belong. Beloved, that's the new heavens and the new earth. Are you longing for that day? Does that define your Christian character? A new heaven and a new earth, a place of unspeakable splendor and perfection He says, in which righteousness dwells, literally where the righteousness of God permanently resides. Can you imagine such a place? And again, I ask you, does your character and your conduct testify to a confident anticipation of these glorious promises? And friend, please hear me. If the answer, quite honestly, is no, this really doesn't excite me too much. And you are way too in love with the world. Not only that, your service to the Lord is pretty insignificant. Because let me tell you, when you roll up your sleeves and you get busy about serving the Lord, you will find that the persecution and the suffering will become so intense that you absolutely cannot wait to get to heaven. We all need to loosen our grip on this world and once again be absolutely consumed with the reality that Jesus is coming again. So in verse 11, he says, again, what type of people ought we to be? A person of holy conduct and godliness is the point. So first we have Peter reminding us of the need to have a confident anticipation of God's promises And then he builds upon this foundation of hope with a second element that should define our character and conduct. And I'm calling this a private pursuit of holiness, beginning in verse 14. Now, let me pause for a moment. I'm saying private because many of us will have a public persona of godliness, but that's not the real issue here. If it's merely public, it can be hypocrisy. You have to guard against that. Beloved, we are who we are based on who we are when we're alone with God. Who we are alone with God defines our true Christian character. I like to call this our secret devotion to God and his glory. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, first of all, notice, indeed, he will find us. Dear Christian, he will find you. And let me speak especially to those of you who like to disappear in the crowd of other believers. Those of you who like to kind of float in and out of church and hopefully not be seen. You know, in your heart, you're desperate to be invisible. You kind of show up every now and then and then you disappear Perhaps you're evading responsibility to serve in the body. Perhaps you want to protect yourself from having to get involved. That's why a lot of people love big churches rather than smaller churches, because it's easier to hide. Perhaps you want to avoid having some sin or some weakness exposed. But beloved, please hear it. He's saying here, be diligent to be found by him. Indeed, he will find you. In fact, he has been aware of you all along. But notice he says, be diligent to be found by him in peace. In peace here, I believe, refers to that confident peace, knowing that we have been reconciled to God, certainly, but we are unashamed. We are unafraid to see our master face to face, to see our savior and our king, the lover of our souls, because we have had a life that has been filled with, Holy conduct and godliness. Unlike the false teachers and the false professors of Christ. We are to be found or to be discovered by Him in peace. Another way of putting it, without any moral blemish, without any fear. And notice how he goes on to add two more adjectives: spotless and blameless. Spotless here would denote, again, purity of heart. That's our character. And blameless, more the outer man, denoting purity of reputation, our conduct. And Beloved, this requires a private, personal pursuit of holiness, a secret devotion to God. Is that a priority in your life? Now, many of us tend to pursue very noble things in our life. Good education, good job. We want to make sure that we find the, the right spouse. We pursue many things that are noteworthy, some that are maybe a little bit less important, like physical condition or good health or enjoyable rec- recreation and so on, good friends. And, you know, those things are important. But, beloved, please hear this. All of those things pale into utter insignificance when compared to the private pursuit of holiness. Of being separated from sin unto God by the power of the Spirit of God as He reveals Himself to us through Scripture. That should be the priority of your life. Beloved, it is our Christian duty to perfect holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7 1. It's not a suggestion. It's our duty. For again, the law of indwelling sin in the body continues to war or rebel against the law of the mind, as Paul said in Romans 7, 23. You see, every day of our life, we should be aware of the need to feed on the word, to mortify indwelling sin by surrendering to the spirit of God. And may I remind you again that it is the spirit of God that is the great sovereign that causes. Causes us to even want to pursue godliness. And he is the great cause of mortification of indwelling sin. The killing of our lusts. In Peter's admonition, we see this constant theme. And is this the constant theme in your prayer life, for example? Let me try to put it to you very practically. Suppose we could eavesdrop on your prayer closet and listen to the words of your heart. Would we hear something like this? Lord, I long for your return and I want you to find me living a life of holy conduct and godliness. I I want to be one whom you find that has been diligent. To be found by you in peace, spotless and blameless. Lord, therefore, I, I want to confess some of my secret sins. I want to name them to you specifically, and the list would go on. And Lord, I want you to show me my blind spots. Lord, I plead with you to strip away every layer of hypocrisy. God, I plead with you to empower me to, to starve my lusts and strengthen my resolve to live for your glory. Lord, I pray, as the psalmist did, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. O Spirit of God, help me to cultivate a heart of righteousness. God, help me to learn to hate those things that you hate and to love those things that you love. Because I know you're coming again. And I long to see you face to face. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting, as the psalmist said. Would that be what we would hear in your prayer life? I hope so. If such a private pursuit of holiness is foreign to you, may I, may I invite you to live much in Second Peter 3. You need to live in this text. You need to know it backwards and forwards and understand how it applies to your life. Because in this passage, Peter provides a powerful motivator for each of us to get serious about pursuing a life that is set apart unto him. Namely, the certain promise of Christ's return. Beloved, don't forfeit blessing in your life because of careless Christianity. Because of wasted opportunity, don't let the weeds of worldliness and lust grow up in the garden of your life and choke out the fruits of the spirit so that there's nothing there. Don't let hypocrisy and spiritual apathy place you in the pathway of divine chastening, rendering you weak and ineffective. Get serious about divine accountability And future rewards. John MacArthur said it so well. I want to quote what he had to say. He says, for believers, the promise of Christ's return serves as a powerful incentive for holy living. After all, future accountability and heavenly reward are compelling motivations, encouraging believers to continually forsake sin and diligently practice the means of grace, such as. Prayer and praise, scripture intake, worship, the Lord's table, fellowship, end quote. And there could be others that could be added. Certainly those are the dominant ones. Does this characterize your life? Peter then adds a third characteristic that should divine the Christian's character and conduct, and that is a zeal for evangelism. Notice verse 15, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord to be Salvation. I know many people struggle with the Lord's timetable. They ask the question, why is he waiting so long? The world is decaying in sin. How long is he going to tarry? His children are crying out to him. Of course, we learned in verses eight and nine when we studied that passage that the Lord's timetable and our timetable are radically different. And his delay in coming is merely part of his plan we learned that when he regenerates the very last person that he elected in eternity past, then the day of the Lord will begin. But I know it's hard to see the Lord so blasphemed in these, these days, isn't it? You know, it, it's hard to even watch the news because of some of the people they will interview and even the commercials we cannot help but believe that god's patience is running out i mean if we being least holy are offended what must he be being the one that is most holy we live in a day where god's wrath certainly must be provoked so i thought about it the ungodly today teach our children that we are merely sophisticated worms that have evolved out of random processes and thus deny God as creator. We live in a world that educators teach our children that the sexual perversion of homosexuality and other forms of immorality are acceptable. And they're even now trying to legislate the fact that it would be illegal to disagree with them. Can you imagine that? We live in a world where our colleges and universities scoff at the word of God and all who believe in it. We live in a world where lawmakers approve the killing of millions of unborn babies to preserve a woman's right to choose. Merely a euphemism for murder. And it is, of course, the great American pastime to watch television television that exalts everything that God despises. Programs that boldly blaspheme God's standards for holiness. And if that isn't enough, we live in a time where false teachers now dominate the evangelical landscape, spewing out every imaginable form of deception. God is being blasphemed. He is being ignored in virtually all corners of the globe. The world is a cesspool of human iniquity, unimaginable wickedness. And might I also add that some of you have provoked the Lord all your life. Therefore, you ought to be thankful that He hasn't come yet, that He is still long suffering. For indeed, still He withholds His judgment. But may I remind you that he will come as he promised. <laughs> he owes us no explanation. In fact, as I have thought about it, I find great peace in acknowledging that his ways are not mine. The great mysteries of God exceed the limits of my imagination. And because of that, I rejoice. And we all should. We should all learn to relax in his providence and rejoice in his long suffering. I certainly rejoice in his long suffering because I have loved ones that still need to come to Christ. And many of you do as well. Some still rightly use the phrase, the year of our Lord. I like that. Indeed, it is the year of our Lord. And we must make the most of it for his sake. And spend ourselves in the spreading of the gospel of Christ. Friends, may we never forget. That God's long-suffering is the indispensable element in His sweet providence whereby He brings salvation to His elect. May we rejoice in it and yet make good use of it by having a zeal for evangelism. Does this characterize your life? Do you, verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation? I think of Paul's words in Philippians 2, verse 15, where he admonished us to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Is that the passion of your heart? So Peter gives us. The theme of a confident anticipation of God's promises. And the importance of having a private pursuit of holiness, a zeal for evangelism, and then fourthly, a vigilance for doctrinal precision. Notice verses 15 and 16. First, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. In other words, these things referring to the events pertaining to Christ's second coming, the day of the Lord, the day of God, and so on. In which, Peter goes on to say, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, indeed, as you study the prophetic scriptures, as you study eschatology, the study of last things, you will quickly see that it is complex. It is, as Peter says here. Hard to understand. That could be interpreted in a different way. It could be interpreted this way hard to interpret or difficult to interpret. But might I add, it's not impossible. The great doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture comes into play here. God has not given us some unclear, some ethereal, mystical book that we cannot understand, but it will take work. But sadly, and more often than not, as Peter says, the untaught and unstable distort it. The untaught refers to the ignorant or the uneducated. And the unstable refers to those who are unsteady. They're not balanced. uh, They're lacking in a sufficient biblical foundation leaving them vulnerable to false teachers and erroneous interpretations. And what happens as a result of that? They distort. A term that literally means to torture or to twist. Certainly not only matters of eschatology, but also, as Peter says, the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. It is absolutely amazing to me to see even very well-meaning people distort The prophetic literature from the error of replacement theology that refuses to interpret scripture consistently according to the normal meaning of language to the absurd rantings of the date setting sensationalists that interpret every current event as some piece of prophecy. We see that the distortion of Bible prophecy today is absolutely pandemic. So therefore, we must all be very careful, careful when interpreting these things that are hard to understand. Thus, we must have a vigilance for doctrinal precision. I was in a new Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, a number of years ago with my dear wife, Nancy. And I'll never forget, there was a lady that seemed to dominate the conversations most of the time, and she seemed to have an answer for everything. And one day, she dogmatically spewed forth a litany of bizarre and easily refuted insights that distorted Scripture regarding prophecy. And it was a distortion so loud, or so, I should say, a distortion so bad that you could hear the loud cry of Scripture as it was just screaming under The twisting. And I found it interesting that no one challenged her. Probably a room of 25 people. The teacher didn't challenge her. Everybody just kind of sat there. And after a a moment or so, they thanked her for her keen insight and began to move on. And and I I was about to have a heart attack. And so I very kindly, and at least I was told it was kind, but very forthrightly and tenderly tried to point out that what she said was was not biblical. And, you know, these things are always always tense, and you try to do that in a very kind way, but, um, frankly, the implications of what she said attacked the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, not to mention completely blew apart any basic understanding of hermeneutics with respect to prophecy to the point where it even affected the character of God and the very essence of the gospel so I felt like I had to say something and later I discovered that this woman was not used to having anyone challenge her not even her own husband and so needless to say I didn't get a Christmas card from her that year but and frankly she never spoke to me again but I've been in situations like that, and you have too, and the point is, my friends, we have got to stand for the truth. You, you, you've got to be vigilant for doctrinal precision, and she, like many others like her, distorted not only that, but the rest of Scripture to her own destruction. The bottom line, we must be vigilant For doctrinal precision, verse 17, Peter goes on and says, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Now, don't slip up here and think that you're that he's talking about falling from salvation. Some people, every time they read the word fall, they want to read that into it It has nothing to do with the context. nothing to do with that. He says he doesn't want you to fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, don't fall from the solid ground of doctrinal precision here. He said before that I want you to be firmly established in the faith. So he's saying don't let unprincipled men. In other words, those who are deliberately deceptive, even morally corrupt. False teachers, don't let them lead you astray by their distorted teaching. So, again, we must all be vigilant for doctrinal precision as Paul said in Second Timothy 2 and verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now, I ask you, is this a priority in your life? And finally, in order to excel in holy conduct and godliness, Because the Lord is coming again, not only must we have a confident anticipation of God's promises, a private pursuit of holiness, a zeal for evangelism, a vigilance for doctrinal precision, but fifthly, a passion to know and glorify Christ. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful doxology. The final words. That the Holy Spirit records here of the dying apostle, a call for us to grow in grace. The idea here is to advance or to mature, to develop in our own awareness and experience of the grace of God in our lives. To put it a little bit differently, he's wanting us to become increasingly amazed at our own sin so that we can become increasingly amazed by his grace. Are you growing in grace? John Newton certainly understood this. He was a man born in August, on August 4th, 1725, in London, England. A man that grew up in a sailor's home. His father was gone most of the time. And at the age of 11, he started working on a ship. As a ship's mate and gradually grew up in that wicked environment, a man who became absolutely lost in his depravity, he became a veteran sailor and he was known by his friends for his public brawls, for his drunkenness, his violent behavior, and he gradually became a slave trader a man without a conscience that trafficked in human misery, suffering, and death. He even described himself as a godless monster. And he was considered by those around him to be a man that was even lower than the pirates. One day at sea, in the providence of God, he got lost in the pages of a book a book that would be very curious for a man such as this to read. It was entitled The Imitation of Christ. And little did he know that the irresistible power of a sovereign God was reaching into his heart and gradually beginning the work of regeneration. As he was reading the book, a violent storm began to blow in the Atlantic and it suddenly fell upon them. It was a storm like he had never experienced before. And he tells how that he grabbed a hold of a rope and he got down on his knees knowing that soon he was going to meet his maker. And under great conviction of his own sin, he cried out to God to save him. And he promised as he knelt there on the deck that if God would save him from this storm... And give him another chance that he would become a moral man and serve him. Well, as the story go- goes, the storm soon subsided. And the hardened sailor and slave trader soon resigned. When he got back to England, he searched out Charles Wesley, the famous father of the Methodist movement. And 20 years later, that wicked sailor and slave trader became a pastor. And he was pastoring in a church in Olney, England, when one day he preached a sermon on the grace of God. And in that sermon, he recounted to his congregation the wickedness of his life from which he had been delivered. And at the close of his message, he sang an autobiographical song that began with this touching but now forgotten verse. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. And he went on to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, And grace will lead me home. Dear friends, there was a man that knew what it was to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Some years later, an unknown American author added a final verse that goes like this. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And indeed, I believe that it will take an eternity to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ because His marvelous love and His inconceivable glory are themselves infinite. Is this the priority of your life, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ? Do you have a passion to know Christ, a passion to mature and develop in your understanding of all that He's done for you? And all that he is to grasp more fully the glory and the majesty and the excellency of Christ, the lover of your soul, to understand what it means for him to be your master, your savior, your king. Indeed, your friend. If the answer is yes, then these final words of praise will resonate in your heart when Peter said to him be the glory both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. Oh, dear Christian friend, given the absolute certainty that our Lord will return exactly the way He has promised and ultimately deliver on all that He has promised us, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? May we all... Rededicate ourselves to this end, manifesting the Christian hope that bears the fruit of a life that is confident in anticipating God's promises. May we cultivate in our hearts a private pursuit of holiness, a zeal for evangelism, a vigilance for doctrinal precision. And a passion to know and to glorify Christ. And, beloved, may I say in closing that if this becomes the theme of your life, if these elements begin to dominate all that you are, you will experience a radical change in your life. Your husband, your wife will notice it, your friends, your children. And God will be glorified in ways that you can't even imagine. And how I pray that we could have a church filled with people that see the priority of these essential characteristics. Maranatha. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Cause them to bear much fruit in our lives, I ask in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.